Please join me in our corporate prayer of illumination. Our Lord and our God, now as we hear your word, fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence. Sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth. Shape our wills that we may desire your ways. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Today's lesson will be from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Thanks, Mike. I'll never forget my first preaching professor in seminary. Bernadette Glover Williams. She was about four feet tall, African-American Baptist woman, but she preached like she was seven feet tall in a voice that commanded your attention. And I'll never forget, she was standing there before us on our first, first night together in class, and she said, next week, you all are going to preach your first sermon for your classmates. And it can be no more than five minutes long. Now, I grew up in the Reformed Church. My classmates, most of them, grew up in African-American Baptist and Pentecostal traditions. Okay? So, whereas the sermons I was used to listening to were about 18 to 22 minutes long, for them, it was customary for the sermon just to keep going as long as the people in the congregation continued to encourage the person to keep going. Right? So here, you all sit back, you listen, maybe nod off a little bit, but in the black church, if you've never been to a service before, it's a conversation between preacher and church. And the cadence of the pastor is dictated by what the people say. So if there is a particular point that really hits home, they will ask or command the person to repeat it or slow down. Or you'll hear You'll hear some amens. You'll hear, come on now. You'll hear some, 
You'll say, whoa, like some, like it's all vocalized, right? There is a back and forth conversation and it takes at least 30 minutes. That would be a short one. I can remember services on Martin Luther King Day where the churches would get together and down in Freehold, the, the pastor of the Mount Zion AME you know, church would get up to preach and it was 45 minutes, an hour. Like the service is barely getting started, right? So Dr. Glover says it's got to be five minutes long and my classmates are protesting and she said, now wait. She said, if you can't say what needs to be said in five minutes, then it doesn't deserve to be said. She said, if you can't make your point in five minutes, then you better rethink the message. And she was right. And she wasn't kidding. That next week, we got up to preach our sermons, and someone went first, and they're going, and they're going, and they're going, and in five minutes, she said, you can stop now. The person had barely gotten started. And they were like, but I have more to say. She said, no, you don't. She also said to me the words that I will never forget in my preaching ministry as long as I live, right? So, again, I grew up in the Morningside Reformed Church. Dr. Lou Lotz, he wrote the back page of the Church Herald, you know, magazine for years and years and years before he retired from doing it a couple of years ago. And a very kind of intellectual approach to preaching. And so I did what I knew. And I preached my five minutes. I had it timed out. I made what I'm sure were life-changing, salient points. And she said to me, Chris, that was fine. That was fine. But next time, I want you to preach as if you actually believe what you're saying. Man alive. To my classmates, who were all kind of fire and brimstone, she would say, that was great, but next time you should say something. She was harsh. I'm not kidding here. Tough crowd. Next week, we will see the reception that Jesus gets from his sermon in his own synagogue. But today, we're going to focus in on his sermon. This comes on the tale of Jesus having been baptized in the Jordan River and the Spirit leads him out into the wilderness where he is tested by the devil for 40 days. And we'll read that story when we get into the season of Lent. But just know that after the Spirit has been with him for this 40-day period of testing, the Spirit leads him back into his home area. He goes back to Galilee, the region around the Sea of Galilee where he grew up, and he's preaching there, and everyone who hears him is amazed by the things that he is saying. And one Sabbath, it says, as was his custom, he goes to his home synagogue in Nazareth, and he stands up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is handed to him. And unrolling it, he finds the place where it is written. 
And Isaiah, what we know now today is Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. He, re he reads, this is not his sermon, this is the scripture lesson. He reads, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant who puts it back in its place. If you go to a synagogue today, the same kind of thing happens, right? They open up the the ark area there and they, they pull out the scroll and they read from it and they put it back and then he sits down and he preaches what's probably the shortest sermon you'll ever hear at least here from me he says today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing that's it And in verse 22, that we'll get to next week, just to give you a preview, the people are amazed at what he says. He's applying a concept known as jubilee. In Isaiah 61, the people have been there and back again. The first 49 chapters of Isaiah are about how the people have gone astray. They have failed to live up to the law of Moses. They have failed to be faithful to God. And so God is sending armies to come and correct them. But there is a day coming, God promises, when the entire world and the words that we're familiar with, every knee shall bow and heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God comes right out of those first chapters of Isaiah. It's this idea that one day the entire world is going to come together and recognize that God is God and name God for who God is. And then Isaiah 50 begins, comfort, comfort my people, because the people have been carried off into exile, and here they are in this wilderness experience, and, and God is giving words of comfort to them from the voice of Isaiah. But here in Isaiah 61, there is a future focus on the day of the Lord the day when all of the suffering of the people and all of the hardships that they've encountered and all of their unfaithfulness will come to an end. Here it says, and this is in Isaiah's voice, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's a concept known as jubilee. 
In the book of Moses, in the books of the law, every 50 years, a Sabbath of Sabbaths, seven times seven. So in the 50th year, all of the land, all of the servants, everything that has changed hands, all of the economic inequalities that have happened over the course of a 50-year period are all reversed. And everyone is put back on a level playing field. The people who had lost it all get some of it back. And the folks who have acquired more are compelled to give back some of what they have acquired over the course of 50 years, right? Imagine that concept today. Imagine that the price of your house is not based on its property value, but based on how much time is left before the Jubilee when you'll have to move out and its original uh, family ownership will revert back. It's quite a concept. But, so the idea for the people of Israel is that over the course of generation after generation after generation, there should not be a continually broadening class of haves and have-nots. And so prisoners get set free, those who are oppressed are given freedom, those who are poor uh, are, are restored. Um, and here it's even recovery of sight for the blind. I mean, it's this, it's this imagination that Jubilee will become this kind of thing that brings all things right. It's a wonderful and amazing concept. Historians question whether it ever actually happened, whether the people ever actually observed this jubilee. But from a faith perspective, it's there. That when the people of faith come together, they ought to be on equal footing. It's the same theology that compels everyone to come to the Lord's table. Rich, poor, old, young, abled and differently abled, everyone welcome at the same table as equal partners with Christ in what Christ is doing in the world. What's revolutionary about Jesus' words here in his home synagogue is that the year of Jubilee is now. He says, I have come to proclaim to you essentially that in my presence, in your hearing today, all of these things are fulfilled. Preaching good news to the poor, proclaiming freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, releasing the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to proclaim the year of Jubilee. He says to this people who themselves are oppressed by a Roman government that even though they are away from a city center, they still very much feel the effects of Roman rule, the empire, 
dictates everything that they do. And so this proclamation of freedom is received as good news. And as is the case in every other place that Jesus preaches, the people are amazed and astounded by his words, how he speaks with authority. makes me wonder because Luke is very much a book of the Spirit and on Thursday nights we are studying the book of Acts which is Luke's second volume which is very much a book about the Spirit and what the Spirit does through ordinary folks to proclaim the good news into farther and farther reaching areas. Sometimes it's through teaching, sometimes it's through their presence, sometimes it's through their acts of mercy. But what they say and what they do is proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. And we as the church in the 21st century are descendants of those early apostles who are themselves descendants of those who would have heard this proclamation from Isaiah hundreds of years before. This word that has been passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation with the promise that every generation that hears these words the scripture is fulfilled in their hearing. The scripture is fulfilled in their experience. I think one of the challenges for the church of the 21st century, as we continue to see fewer and fewer folks just automatically compelled to attend a church service or be religiously minded is to think about in what way are these words fulfilled in our hearing? And in what ways is the year of the Lord's favor being proclaimed by what we say and what we do as a church and as individually as members of it out in the world? It was Mother Teresa, Saint Teresa now of Calcutta, in her missionary work there in India, who talked about proclaiming the gospel every day, and if necessary, using words. But the idea is that the good news of the gospel is something that we embody, that we live out in the way that we interact with our world. And what we'll see from Luke's gospel is that Jesus embodies this year of the Lord's favor in his teaching, in his healing, in the way he casts out demons, and in the way he challenges the overarching social structures of his day that sought to keep people in their place. And in many ways, 
That is what the Spirit is at work doing out there in the world. And the invitation for the church is to participate, to play along, to experience what the Spirit is at work doing, and then go and do likewise. So as you imagine it in the world that you occupy today, in your jobs, in your situations in life, the places that you find yourselves on a daily basis, how are these words from Isaiah being fulfilled in your hearing? The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's good news. As we'll hear next week, not always received as good news, by everyone. We'll see the faith that might befall us if we actually attend to what Jesus is saying. But for today, seek to understand this message and the way that it is being revealed in your hearing, in your experience this morning. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you for this proclamation of jubilee in our midst. We pray, Lord, that we would have a sensitivity to how your spirit is at work to fulfill these words in our hearing this morning. And how we as a church might be called to, to this anointed work of proclaiming good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoner recovery of sight for the blind, relieving the oppressed. Lord, how are we being called today to proclaim the year of your favor in our midst? Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts and minds to comprehend this fascinating and fabulous word that you have given to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able to stand, would you stand with me now as we affirm together our faith the words of question and answer number one of the Heidelberg Catechism. People of God, what do we believe? My only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen. 